Hello, and welcome to today's podcast. This podcast is for learning educators, and our title today is Learning Educators Identity, Development, and Values. I'm Kristen Barber, Executive Director of the National Institute for Learning Development, and I have three of my esteemed colleagues as a part of this podcast. Again, with me today, Dr. Carrie Borkowski, Johns Hopkins University professor, Dr. Paula Clark, a math specialist and instruction specialist, um, in a public school, K-12 setting, high school, and almost soon to be Dr. Brianne Roos, joining us from higher education as well. Welcome, ladies. It's good to be back again for podcast number two. You know, you never really know if you're going to be invited back after the first time, so I guess it's, I guess it's good that we're all back again together. <laughs> yes, it is. Hey, Paul, I have to say Dr. Clark sounds really good. Oh, I well, like yes. that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm getting used to it. Trying yeah. it on. Absolutely. <laughs> so the last time, ladies, that we were together, we discussed the transition to a learning ed educator and the need to notice and reflect and attend to this important idea related to needing to have all of the answers and being worried about whether or not we were prepared for all of the contingencies that we might face as an educator, either coming from the student or our administrators or the, the cultural setting in which we're, we're working. We also talked about in our first podcast, we identified values um, that teachers have and um, valuing the modeling of effort and um, that it's okay to make mistakes and how we grow from those mistakes, intellectual curiosity being a key, and just um, an excitement about being in a space that allows and affords the opportunity to explore, to try, and to reflect on our own practice as educators. And then we also talked about how, as a learning educator, we help our students with learning rather than just knowing. And Paula, I think you were particularly adept at helping us to make that point of, of that transition. And then as we concluded our first podcast, we really segued into a, a conversation around values. What do we hold as educators as values? Is it time? Is it knowledge? Is it pedagogy? And it brought us to this concept, and Carrie, you really led us to this conversation about our identity as an educator, and as a, in particular, a learning educator. And so Carrie, maybe you can help us sort of share the, the three-pronged focus that we wanna have with today's podcast. Yeah, sure, Kristen, thanks, uh, thanks for having me back. I feel like I passed that first bar, and Brianne and Paula, it's good to be with you again. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what it says about me, Kristen, but I have had identity development on the brain um, of late. I think it's really important and we're not talking enough about it, uh, specifically the identity development of our teachers. Um, certainly we focus on our students. So today we're hoping to do a couple of things. Um, as a methodologist, the first question is near and dear to my heart. We want to define that construct. So what is identity when we talk about this big sort of amorphous concept? And what is it specifically when we think about a learning educator? We also need to sort of motivate the reason to have this podcast, which will be looking at reasons that we should even care about developing this kind of identity. And thirdly, and of course, we always try to do this in our podcast is we want to bring practical, tangible ideas and techniques that we can immediately implement. And so we'll talk a little bit about strategies to feed, cultivate, and really facilitate um, the development of that, that identity. Because Kristen, I think one another thing that came out of last week last week, last month's podcast is this idea of being really intentional. Um, we are so intentional around what we achieve with our students with course objectives, goals, you know, mission, whatever you want to call it. But we don't always do that with our teachers. We, we just kind of assume they're going to pick it up as we go. And, and we're here to tell you that maybe you need to be doing some intentional work. So what is identity? Why should we be looking at this, this thing called identity development? And how can we cultivate it? Fantastic. I, I appreciate you intentionally setting our agenda too. So we stay on topic as we, we tend as educators to go down rabbit trails and have so much in our heads and, and where we want to go. So that's great. You know, as we think about sort of defining this construct, what is identity generally, and then specifically identity related to being a learning educator, there's lots of research out there about this construct, how we define identity, maybe as a set of meanings applied to self in different contexts. Burke um, said that. Brownell and Tanner suggests that identity changes with time, goes through different stages, and is modified by the environment. 
And so I thought as a good starting place for us as we begin to unpack this concept of construct of identity ourselves is to share some stories about our own first identity development and then maybe what initiated some of the transition, whether it was time or context. And, and I'll just start, you know, I, I've been teaching adults for, for nearly 20 years. And I would have to say, as I've been reflecting on this concept of identity, it took me more than a year to shake off this perception that I had of an imposter syndrome. Even though I had successfully completed the course myself that I was now teaching as an instructor at this graduate level course, this course was created by other individuals. And I felt as if I was simply just channeling the content as a student really posing as an instructor without the instructor knowledge or background to back it up. And I wanted to develop my identity as an adult educator, but I wrestled with the idea that I, I was just a parrot, almost a puppet. Um, sort of giving a flat two-dimensional version as an instructor of something that I had experienced as a three-dimensional learning experience as a student. And so it wasn't until my identity learning as an educator began to be shaped when I gave myself the space to experience learning as an instructor and then to reflect on those experiences. Carrie, going back to that idea of intentionality. For examples, I began asking myself, what mistakes did I learn from as I was teaching today? Or how could I relate to the students as a collaborator with them in this learning journey? And I'll have to say, this sense of imposter identity just didn't go away immediately. I really had to wrestle with it over time. And so, Giving myself space to reflect, to think, to ask questions, help to be a part of that transition as I built, built my identity as a, a learning educator. So, Kristen, I, I think it's so great that you're talking about imposter syndrome. And I have to, you said over a year as if that was a long time. And I have to say, <laughs> I think that's a really short time. Like, that's, to me, that's amazing that it only took you a year because I'm going to be uh, full disclosure. I still feel imposter syndrome all the time. So um, what has changed? Yeah. So what has changed for me? Um, you know, I, I think this idea of imposter syndrome, identity development, we all know they're super complicated. And uh, Brianne and I have ac actually been working on some uh, manuscripts and we came across this author, Schlossberg. Uh, she's actually out of the University of Maryland and she talks about this idea of transition. So authors may not be saying identity development, but they're probably speaking the same language. And she talks about how all adult, adults at any point in time could be going through these transitions and these changes. And so what I've come to sort of grapple with is I don't know that I'm, my goal is to rid myself of imposter syndrome. My goal is to learn how to attend to it and manage the feelings that come with imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Because I'll tell you, um, as I, I think we shared last time, and I, I don't mean this to sound braggadocious, but to make a point, I have, a, I have two doctoral degrees. Um, and you know, One it doesn't matter how many for you, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's a whole nother topic for another pod <laughs> podcast. But the point I'm trying to make though, is, you know, we think getting credentialed and getting more experience and getting this position at a, at a job or in a place or becoming a mom of a couple of kids, because now you understand it changes that imposter syndrome. And I'm here to tell you for better, or for worse, it may not, you're still going to bump into those transitions Conditions, that those moments of dissonance and feel that that stress and so the way I, I remember distinctly um, advising my first doctoral student so this is after the second doctoral degree and I remember coming home and saying to my partner holy cow this this woman like she's trusting me like I give her feedback and she responds like <laughs> there's, it's, it's me and I like there's nobody else like adjusting these chapters right now and it was it was a privilege, but it was a lot of pressure, like seriously. And so what I've decided with imposter syndrome is I just got to own it and acknowledge it. And what I'm trying to do, is, and I know Brandon and I have talked about this, is I'm really, I'm, I'm all about paradoxes right now. And what I mean by that is for me, it's not an either or proposition anymore. Like I'm not, I'm not an expert or I'm not, or I'm not, you know, this or that. It's and and both. So I can, I can have some knowledge and I can advise a student, but that doesn't mean I'm going to know it all. And I need to be able to hold those two conflicting ideas in my hand or in my brain, wherever it is, at the same time. And so when we talk about identity development today, I hope we can really sort of think about how do we help our 
teachers hold those conflicting ideas? Well, and I think I like that idea of, of embracing it and looking at the paradox because I think that it never is an all or nothing thing. And, and I think it's, it's always gradual. So just like development in and of itself, it's something that's gradual. And for me, my identity as a learner educator was gradual. I didn't have this big moment where I shifted from being a teacher to being an educator. Um, when I think about my early careers, um, I think about it as I focused on teaching then. And I read an article recently um, by DeFore, and he talked about um, from a administrative point of view, looking at his teachers as teacher and only focusing on the teaching aspect. What are the inputs? What are we putting in? What are we doing in the classroom? And I worked really hard on developing my instructional strategies and creating the perfect lessons and the perfect handouts and aligning everything the way it should be. And those things are really important, but what I didn't think about was the learning that was taking place. So I didn't look at the other side of the coin. And, you know, I think that I was, I was kind of taking it from the aspect of if I teach, and I think I talked about this on the last podcast, that if I teach well, they will learn, but I didn't look at them as learners. So in my transformation, the way that I see myself now as both a teacher and a learner is that I have become a better listener. And so really, I'm listening for those cues to see, are the, are, the students, are the students learning? I'm listening for the cues to see, you know, is it going well? Am I missing something? How am I not relating to these kids? Um, so every time that I encounter students in my classroom, it's a learning experience for me. Um, so it's really now just becoming evident to me that I am a learner. I mean, I've always considered myself learning in terms of formal education, but it's much more informal than that. It's, it's what we do on a daily basis. Paula, that must be so nice for your students because I feel like the thing that I, I also remember is our students are also going through their own identity development. So right. they're feeling nervous and distress and anxiety. So I feel like for you to give them, empower them and trust them a little bit, that has to also help on their right. side, right? I would think. Yeah, and, so. I, and I really like even just the way you respond to their questions or their answers. And, you know, I, I listened to a video presentation by Ray Reich and he talked about um, listening to students and how that's more important than listening for who was trying mm -hmm. to prove that two is greater than four and and really it's true so if you stop in the <laughs> middle of your, your class and, and you listen like you know I've caught myself now saying like tell me more like I don't understand what you're what you're saying like tell me more what's your vision what are you seeing what are you understanding to get at no, no that's not that's, that's the wrong answer well that's not helping any of us but really getting out what is your interpretation of it helps me be a better teacher and of course hopefully helps them be better as students. Paula, I think your discussion of checking in with students a lot and Kristen mentioned before collaborating with her students kind of teased me up perfectly to talk about some of my development as um, you know my identity. I think although it was gradual as Paula suggests, I can think of a particular pivotal moment for me and I was teaching a senior class, it was an elective, um, an adult neurology course and I really love this content and I knew the students and I was excited because I thought they would be really engaged and um, participate a lot in the class and that was not happening. <laughs> the first few class meetings were very flat and I was so disappointed and I found myself taking on this sort of teacher knows best attitude thinking like I am doing all of this and I don't know why you're not <laughs> responding to me um, and then I found myself sort of grumbling with colleagues about it and talking about the students which is really not how I generally am and it just wasn't going anywhere. I could feel that it was not only unproductive, but counterproductive. And so I made a deliberate shift in my, in my thinking and in my practices to talk with the students and to engage them differently. I did, different, I did things differently to begin each class. We did a brain stretch exercise and it asked them to pull content from the last class and to reflect on it a little bit out loud with their peers. And it worked like a charm. And I was forward with the students about what I had done and why. And I think both pieces of that, so kind of shifting from the teacher knows best to an approach that was more open to learning with the students uh, helped me a lot. And I think it helped them and Carrie, to your point earlier of the students are watching and the students are developing their identities. If they took anything from that, if they don't remember the neuro, if they remember like, wow, things weren't going well and she made a change and she told us about it. I think that's valuable. Yeah. I hope so. And I think, I 
think to your point that uh, students are way more observant than we give them credit for. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just on, on a very small note, unrelated to, you know, the math I was teaching, a student asked me the other day, would have never thought she was paying that attention. We do a lot of, you know, me getting to know them, them getting to know me. And she said, you always talk about your grandma. Why don't you talk about your parents? And, and for her to observe that was like, wow, you really are listening to what we're saying. And, and, you know, so the conversation went on, but they're really paying attention. That's for sure. Yeah. And I, and I think what each of us have said is there's an openness, a willing to be transparent as we're journeying through this development of our identity. So the students are seeing it. We're allowing reflection time for ourselves, um, I think is key to help shape that learning identity for, for each of us. So why should we care about developing a learning educator identity? What impact does it have? What value could it bring to the situations where we are? And, and maybe Carrie, are there, are there some anecdotal evidences that, that come to mind for you? Yeah, sure. As, as Brianne was talking and I was listening to Brianne as well as Paula, I was thinking about, you know, what would happen if, you know, Paula and Brianne weren't able to make that shift? Like what's, you know, if Brianne had sort of stayed in that teacher knows best mode. And so my first sort of thought about why we should care about this is what happens if we aren't able to make those shifts because there are a lot of people out there that for all different reasons won't or don't um, and I think what happens is you you get those feelings of shame right you start to think that I'm not good enough it doesn't have anything to do with maybe not executing a lesson effectively it becomes very personal shame Brene Brown tells us that shame is about saying that it's you are wrong or you are bad versus guilt, which is, you know, the lesson I did today was less than perfect, right? Like putting it on the action versus yourself. And I mean, I, I don't have the expertise in shame, but you can imagine the isolation, the depression, all of those sorts of things that go along with those, those not being able to get out of those transitions. So I think as Paula and Brianne and Kristen, you mentioned, our students are also watching that and so if they see us sort of start to go back into our shell or start getting angry, right? Because you get, you get shame, you get fear, and then you get angry. And then you're really shutting down. So all of that openness to other ideas, being able to hold those conflicting uh, perspectives, it just doesn't happen. So I feel like at a very basic level, there's a mental health piece to this for our teachers and our students that then has um, these ripple effects. Um, I think the other, one of the other things I'll mention then let somebody else sort of chime in here is um, Brene Brown also talks about um, courage and vulnerability that you, you can't have one without the old other. And, and we often talk about courage as being some, you know, sort of going into the fire or going back towards the explosion. And we always think of it as it is very sort of, I don't know, tough and strong. And then we think about vulnerability and we don't think about vulnerability as being strong, right? It's sort of weak and soft. But those two things are really important. And so I would argue that when we pay attention to our identity development, particularly as learners, which is to me admitting that there's something you don't know, it requires courage and vulnerability, which can open doors to all sorts of connection and deep learning and satisfaction. And I mean, we could, the list could go on. So, um, so that's what I think, Kristen. <laughs> you know, as, as you were talking, Carrie, about that word courage, Parker yeah. Palmer wrote the whole book, yeah. The Courage to Teach. Love and him. What does what that, right? What does that mean to step into the fire and to have the courage to teach, the courage to evaluate ourselves, to step into the position of, of the learners and what they're bringing to the, to the situation? Paula, what are, what are your thoughts about why we should care about developing an identity as a learning educator? Well, and, and, and I had, you know, I have ideas about why we should, and, and, but I want to take off something that Carrie just said first, and, and that is that idea of shame. As soon as you started talking, you know, I was thinking about one of my very earliest experiences. I was six years into teaching, and now I'm in my 29th year. And at that time, we were given state exams. And I was teaching in a school that there was one English class, one math class, one, one of each of the contents, and that was it. And all of the students in all of the other subjects passed their exams with 100%, and I had two students not pass. And I remember 
being devastated as a teacher. And I remember just, you know, everyone else did it and I couldn't do it with these two Mm -hmm. students. And I was broken down into tears and the students and I were all together. And, and I remember the support of my colleagues was phenomenal. But at that time, you know, if I would have stopped, if I would have said, I can't do this, you know, I'm just not good enough. Like you were suggesting, Carrie, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today and, and I wouldn't have, you know, and through the support of my colleagues. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the ways that we do gain our, our identity. And I think it's important to observe your colleagues and, and to watch. And that's how we learn best. And, you know, Carrie, you talked about a paradox. And I think that one exists with teaching. Like we want to be autonomous. We want to do our own thing. We want to run our classrooms, but yet it's, and it's almost secretive. So maybe it's that, that vulnerability or afraid, you know, to say that we're vulnerable, we secretively watch others and and try to gain from their experience, but let's put it out in the open and let's, let's go learn from each other. Um, That's the best way to learn. That's what the research shows us. It's through collaboration and observation and and watching is, is, is how we grow as teachers. So to your point, naming it, naming it and saying, you know, this is what I need to grow on. This is me. This is me as a teacher. And these are the obstacles I'm going to encounter. And how do I get over them? And I need support from other people, which takes courage. Paula, that's like, that is so, I mean, that was such a great story and like perfect evidence of what we're talking about. I mean, that, that self-talk that you had with yourself, beating yourself up, that's exactly what we're talking about, right? I'm wondering if I could ask just a follow-up question, like, how did you get yourself out of that tailspin? I, I really attribute it to my colleagues. And, you know, I really think that that we talked about, you know, the difference between the exams and, and the students that maybe weren't performing their best. Next year, I certainly tried different strategies. I was the only math teacher, so I had to go out in, in search of those. Um, and, and it really came down to, to their support and, and knowing that next year is a different year. We're going to try some things. We're going to be more successful, and, and we move on from there. Paula, I love that you talked about perfection and how everybody else got it um, and you didn't get it. And I think that there's a lot of power in that. And I almost was thinking as you were talking, Carrie, about courage and vulnerability, maybe this is too strong, but I wonder if perfectionism is sort of the opposite of courage and vulnerability, or at least they're sort of on different sides of the spectrum, right? So, and I think certainly as a newer faculty member, it's hard to not be perfectionistic. You wanna know everything, you wanna be totally prepared, kind of alluding to what we spoke about in our first podcast. but the power of teaching, I think, really comes in the balance of being prepared and, and certainly knowing your content area, but not being so hyper-focused on that perfectionism so that you lose that, um, the openness to learn with your students. And Sherry and colleagues did some work on professors of psychology, and they found that those who were so hyper-focused on perfectionism um, struggled. They struggled professionally with research, and they struggled with connecting with their students. And so we have evidence in the literature, and I think we have anecdotal evidence you know, with ourselves, that there's a really desirable balance between knowing your stuff and being open to connecting and learning new things with our students. And Brianne, that just segues so nicely into what I was thinking anecdotally about one of my mentors always said, be a student of your students, know your students. And so why for me is identity so important, becoming and shaping this identity as a learning educator is because that we teach and we interact with our students grounded in part by what and who our identity is. And so that's going to shape our interactions with them. And you know, Guy talks about equal opportunities to learn. And as we think about all of our students, input doesn't necessarily equate to intake. And so all of our students come to us with different prior experiences, with various affective filters that have been shaped by their learning, their culture, their environment. And then Vygotsky talks to us about the zone of proximal development. All of this affects sort of how and what individuals learn. And if I am an an educator who has a learning educator identity, I'm aware of this. I'm thinking about my relationship with my students and how all of these factors are coming into impact their experience in the particular learning situation that we're having. And so my identity is going to shape the way that I interact with my students. And if I'm a learner wanting to understand where they're coming from, I'm going to be better prepared to be a co-learner with them and, and helping to scaffold their learning through the process. 
Would it be okay if I just um, sit and listen to this great conversation instead of <laughs> participate? Because there's like so many cool things I'm like jotting out down notes seriously. I have to be honest, I'm still back at Brienne saying that perfectionism is sort of maybe the opposite of courage and vulnerability. I'm really, I'm really thinking about that. I think you're onto something, Brianne. I get, I don't know if it's opposites. I don't know what the right word is, but I totally get what you're saying. And then Kristen, when you said, um, be a student of your students, I'm like, all right, I got to drop these perfectionist tendencies because the last thing I want in my classes is for my students to be worried about perfectionism. Like, come on. So yeah. So thank you. This is, I'm like, my brain is itching and scratching it and wondering about things. So thanks for that guys. Ladies. Well, and it just goes back to Paula saying how much her student was a student of her. She yeah. listening to mm-hmm. why are you talking about grandparents, but, but not parents. And so what are we modeling? And, and sometimes they're, you know, sometimes the best thing that happens for me when I'm teaching is that the kids are, the students are teaching me way more than I could have ever taught them. And that's, that's a really powerful place to be in my own identity as a learning educator that I'm open to them teaching me as well. I wonder how many of our teachers, if we had a, I'm just thinking as the, the researcher on uh, cap on is thinking, I wonder if there's a survey that measures perfectionism. Of course there is, right? I mean, Brand cited a survey that was talking about it. I'd be really interested to know like our listener teachers, you know, how many of us do suffer from perfectionism and sort of how that shows itself right in our classrooms and how we prepare for things. I mean, we keep talking about being open and I think there are a lot of great teachers who are open, but this is again, another case that I feel like we've been talking about in, in other segments of the podcast with the last episode, which is if we don't do our own work (laughs) and acknowledge that we have these perfectionist tendencies, like how can we walk into a classroom and try to help our students not be perfectionist? Try to, you know, how often do you tell your students, it's okay to fail. I just did a sync session last night and I was like, fail early and often. It's okay. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, if I were on the other end of this, I'd be rolling my eyes because I am so type A, right? But like, I see the value of it being on the other end, but how do we, I don't know, how do we feel it in our bones and internalize it ourselves is is sort of what I, my struggle. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. Well, and you know, I think Carrie, it was you, you mentioned earlier, this mental health piece of being able to be okay with the dissonance between the paradox and and the struggle of of, uh, courage and vulnerability and imposter syndrome. And, you know, one of the articles we were reading in preparation for our podcast today was talking about um, sort of this idea of congruence between identity and what it means in the context of where you're working. So maybe we can talk for just a minute about, you know, how identity matters for teachers, leaders, and students as it relates to productivity and satisfaction, retention, and, and how we from a mental health standpoint, from a productivity standpoint, if we have an identity as a learning educator, how is that helpful? And when it's not there, what happens when that incongruence is there and some of the fallout that can occur? I'm and happy anybody to jump, can take that. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to jump in. I feel like I've been hogging the airtime a little bit, so I don't, I don't want to do that, but I'll be quick. Um, I, I had... Um, to get ready for the podcast, I had done some research. I teach a leadership course in the summer and the ED program. And I was looking at sort of what kinds of leadership theories might be important for this kind of work. Cause as we talked about definitely in the first podcast was, you know, leadership has to be involved in these pieces in some way, shape or form. And interestingly enough, um, certainly transformational leadership is, is an important uh, style of leadership or, or theory of leadership um, for folks who aren't familiar with it, or maybe have a sort of their own understanding of what it is. It's this idea, right, of trusting and empowering um, your, your, I don't like to say employees because that's very hierarchical, but the colleagues or the folks working in the building with you to give them a sense of agency and really say, go be innovative. I trust you. You know, you have this training and and do what thinks best. Interestingly enough, and and for our little after the podcast, but I don't have it in front of me, I happened to bump into an article this morning that was talking about trans- transformational leadership. And it actually said, it did a study where when they use transformational leadership, it wasn't as effective as, claim, as the claims are when there was incongruence of values between the leadership, 
the institution and the folks in the building. That's so, powerful. Wow. I thought, I thought that was really cool because yeah. we, we always, I feel like transformational leadership is often the go-to. I'm, I'm using air quotes for, for the listeners um, who can't see us. Um, it's sort of that go-to leadership theory when you're working on culture, right? You're really, and trying to empower, but you also have to do a values check. And that's why in that first episode, we talked about really working on your values, being intentional about what you believe in, and then working with your, your folks in the building and the staff and, and faculty to, to bring congruence to that. And the other article, I think, Kristen, you were alluding to, it's a, a right 2005 article. It's a little bit all, older, but she also talked about how you know, congruence of, for faculty and departments was important and congruence came about when there were larger social networks, you were able to include more people, you were able to collaborate. So all those things we were talking about. Informal, peer learning. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, she has evidence that when you have those things in yeah. an organization, whether it's a department or someplace else, congruence happens and, and good things come from that. Well, and I think to your point, I like that idea of incongruence of values and, and, and really, I think sometimes that's what impedes teachers from changing. And, and at the K to 12 level, when you're, when you're looking at you know, your lifetime as a teacher, it's gonna involve change. There's going to be change and, and teachers that don't want to change, you know, again, to your point of intentionally looking at your values, like why are you not changing? We know from the research of Gusky um, that our beliefs and our values impact the way we teach. Um, but we have to look at the values of the people around us as well and I think as part of identifying you know creating that identity or developing that identity as a learner educator um, we really need to look to our peers and, and you're right we go to our peers that we have like-minded values with and, and we are willing to learn from them and we are willing to embrace them but we're not always willing I don't think to go out in search of those that have conflicting values and sometimes <laughs> that's the dissonance we need um, you know and, and not that we have to adopt their values we have our core values that's who we're a member of that's the group we're a part of we've identified them um, but it doesn't hurt to learn from others that have those conflicting values because that dissonance is sometimes necessary and, and I think as you mentioned earlier um, it takes the courage it takes the courage to say you know for me to walk up to a colleague and, and, and that I might not be always, you know, in tune with um, and say, can I observe your class? Can I see what's going on? That's a hard pill to swallow sometimes. So, so I think it's <laughs> seeking out those opportunities, you know, to really to embrace that and, and realize that that's what's going to help me grow. That's what's going to help my identity change. And, and along with the students, and again, to your point with values, it's not only teachers that have different values than we do, but our students do. You know, we clearly value education. We went into education. That's where we, we enter the profession at some point in our lives. And they don't all come from families that value education. So again, when you have that conflict, um, to your earlier point, Carrie, we have to name it and, and then we have to do something with it. Paula, I love your point about collaborating, and it actually reminded me of Kristen's initial uh, discussion of imposter syndrome. And I think that sometimes it takes courage to collaborate because you're admitting that maybe you need a little bit of help or you'd love some guidance or some feedback, and that's not always an easy position to take, I guess, you know, kind of relating to the perfectionism idea. But if we think about learning theories, Kristen mentioned Guy and Vygotsky, so we all bring different opportunities to learn. Our students, we talk about it, we know that with our students, but we as faculty bring the same. So we we all bring different experiences, maybe clinical perspectives or academic experience or life you know, work. Um, we bring that to our faculty and we bring that to our students. And I think we owe it to ourselves to recognize that we actually do belong, even if you feel that you're a junior faculty member or uh, maybe you're in a different department or that you, know, you feel less than other people who are more accomplished on paper like Paula's colleagues who you know, earn perfect statistics with their students passing <laughs> tests. Um, Paula brought a lot to that classroom and she needs to recognize that she brings a value, right? And that we can learn from one another. So to Vygotsky's, you know, zone of proximal development point, that's a perfect way to collaborate. And that's sort of a lens that we can look through that collaboration with is, you know, maybe you have a more capable peer in one area or another, but you probably are that more capable peer in others. And mm -hmm. I think we have to kind of get to that sense of belonging as well. We're not, and we're not really, um, where I love the ideas that you just shared, Brian. The thing that stuck with me, Paula, was um, conflict and dissonance because I think, and maybe this is a, a topic for another podcast, Kristen, but what I've been thinking about lately as well is 
you know, cultivating belonging and working on identity, whether it's ourselves or our students, is, I'll say, less difficult when people are open to it. But what happens when you bump into situations where, you know, I mean, it's conflict. And I don't want to get political because I know we all have different views. But when you, ha when you have some, I mean, there's a lot of hate right now in this country, particularly in a lot of, you know, heavy, strong divisions. And so it just begs the question of how do you do this work in more difficult circumstances? So that might be something to take up another time. Well, you know, speaking of just the, the troubled times, you know, politically that, that we're facing economically, um, culturally relating to one another, one of the, the great privileges I had was studying under Reuven Feuerstein, an Israeli psychologist, um, recently passed away. But um, some of his life's work, he survived the Holocaust and he was in Europe and he was watching the Jews who had also survived the Holocaust, the young teenagers come out and find themselves without family, without culture, without homes, and trying to reintegrate and belong into a society that had basically tried to, to obliterate them. And so he began to re-enculturate them and, and work with them and help them adapt, get back into society. And his peers, he was a, he was a peer with Piaget. And can you imagine the, the coffee shop talks that these theorists <laughs> and, and gentlemen must have had? Oh, to be a fly on that wall. Yeah. But um, they said to him, well, okay, if you can modify the brains of typically you know, normally developing people who have had traumatic events, can you do that for individuals who chromosomally start out life different? So those maybe with Down syndrome. And that's sort of where his theory of structural modifiability came out and this idea, this belief in the human ability to be modifiable. And Feuerstein noted that this human modifiability belief system, we've been talking a lot about beliefs, is essential for educators. And that if we don't believe as a learning educator that all human systems are open to change, change in our thinking, change in our actions, change in our way of viewing other people, then we don't become fully realized as an educator and we're missing that opportunity. So a lot of us have this sort of general belief when we go into education that kids can change, adult learners can change, but do we believe that for this particular student? who's producing conflict or challenge in our class? And do we hold that belief system of modifiability for every individual within which we come in contact with? Ooh, Kristen, do we believe it for lot. ourselves? Right? Good point. I mean, I think it's one thing to, to apply it to the students, but do we believe it for ourselves? I think it's the easiest thing to do is to just keep doing what you're doing and to maybe blame external factors for a lack of success. But um, are we holding ourselves to that? standard ourselves I don't know that's the hard part there's the work I mean Carrie talked earlier about the work and it it's really hard I am so type a I love to be have everything <laughs> all set um, and it takes for me it takes a lot of courage to step out of the script and to be vulnerable with my students but those are by far the best moments so well and, and I like your point Brian when I started my um, dissertation um, research intervention I started with a session with my teachers and we simply started by listing all the what ifs, like what if students came from homes that their parents supported them? What if they did their homework? What if they brought pencils to school? What if, what if, what if? So all those external factors that you're talking about. And then we flipped it around. And then we just changed it to, okay, they are coming with this, they are coming with this, they are coming in this. What is our role in this? What if we did something different? So we're always using those external factors as excuses, but what if we changed? And, and then we ended it, that was it. So it was this, you know, what if we changed? And then we went into how can we change? So, so really in terms of developing your identity, I think you have to keep asking yourself that question. What if I did more? What else could I do? You know, what actions can I take? Um, good point. I like that. That was, Kristen, that was pretty heavy, powerful, pretty heavy. The thing that I thought about, and I'm not, I'm going to completely um, not do a good job on quoting Brene Brown, but the idea is that our level of self-acceptance cannot exceed, no, our level of self, see, I knew I was going to butcher it. The level of self-perception of belonging cannot be any higher than our level of self-acceptance. And so put that to yourself and put that to your students and Kristen, I just love the idea that you're thinking about with respect. It made me think of growth mindset. It made me think about when neurologists or neuroscientists talk about the plasticity of the brain, like literally. Um, and then um, in the book that you shared with me, Kristen, I think the metaphor is skylights. Yes. Right? The idea of being able to sort of anything is possible. 
So I, I do think, Paul, I agree with everybody about, you know, applying that to our students and ourselves. I think the tricky part is twofold for me. One, I'm not a K-12 teacher, but I am entirely aware of all that is put on our teachers. So when a student misbehaves or does those things that are against whatever, it's so hard for a teacher to take the time to attend to that student and think about all this because they have 20 something other students and they've got a test that they've got to pass at the end of the year, right? So that's their realities of it. The other thing, and, I, and I'm sorry, I keep going back to Brene Brown. I told you I'm a fangirl, so sorry, um, is, is the idea that we do need to be open but we also have to be safe. We have to feel safe, right? Like physically and mentally. So there's this idea of boundaries. And so it always brings me back to, can we agree on some values, which is valuing human life, right? Like at, at a really molecular level, where can we find agreement with someone that just completely disagrees with us? Because that to me speaks to safety. So if someone doesn't agree that I'm, I'm you know, worthy of you know, protecting as a human being, I'm not going to enter that space with that person. And I think I, I say that just to acknowledge that there are real people in this world who don't have that safety and that I, as a white woman, um, you know, have, have some privilege that other people don't have. And I think it, we have to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. and, and these are tough conversations that we yes. have to be willing to enter into. And while we may feel afraid, if we never discuss them, like Carrie, you were talking about what's brushed in the dark stays in the dark can grow and fester and don't have these opportunities to, to change and develop. And so, so we're really talking about why should we care? Why should we care about a learner identity, learning educator identity, and, and really starting to get to some of these, maybe what are the barriers or what are the strategies to feed and cultivate um, this identity as, as a learning educator. And, and I know Clark and Hollingsworth talk a lot about um, changes for um, educators as they go through the professional learning process. And, and they sort of lay out reasons why changes are initiated. And they look at sort of the locus of change as being external or internal. And really they land on, it's going to end up being a combination mm. but the most effective change that occurs through professional learning, shaping our identity is really internal, is really those hard intentional looks, struggling with the conflict and, and trying to move the needle in um, myself as an educator and my practice with those in which I'm learning and working on a daily basis. So maybe let's let's talk about some of the conditions needed to to identify uh, to identify values and feed and cultivate um, this learning educator identity. I mean, I think we've touched on some of them already, Kristen, even though we haven't sort of named them as strategies, but just the idea, I mean, Brian talked a lot about, and so did Paula, collaboration, right? Finding, even if it's at the beginning, you know, I think Brian, you had mentioned how some, it does take courage to sort of step out of your comfort area, whether it's, you know, wanting to be completely organized or wanting to be in a space where you're right. So maybe it's finding just a trusted colleague that you've, you know, you feel like you can be um, vulnerable with and practice practicing, right? And sort of naming those things. Um, certainly, Paula and I both talked about naming and attending to the dissonance we're feeling and just finding a way, you know, I know it's hard, but just to admit when a student asks you a question, I, I really don't know, but I'm going to find out for you. And that was a great question. Um, I think the other thing I would mention is, um, I don't know if I, I talked about this in the last, I feel like I did, but that Google study um, where Google was re researching um, um, you know, what makes a high performing team and what they found at the end was not the credentials and experience of the team, but it was how they were managing the conversations and each team member having sort of almost equal voice and contribution in the group. So really giving space for everybody to share and contribute. And then the other thing that came up in that study was being, having a sense, like a sensitivity, being able to read the room for emotions and stress and things of that nature. So it had, it had almost nothing to do with the who, but the how, so. Well, and I think, I think the how is extremely important in terms of, you know, one of the ways that we can, we can face it. We talked a lot about today about, you know, naming it and, and just making sure it's obvious and pointing it out to ourselves. But I think, I think in terms of identity development too, you know, it's really this issue of us as teachers really taking a step back and being willing to see development 
as change. So, so it's not about you have to change the way you're teaching. It's not about do this now, you used to do it then, but it's really about viewing change and maybe just taking out the word change and viewing it as development. We would never say to a parent raising their young child, you know, um, nothing you're doing is helping or, or try it this way or, you know, wh whatever. We would, we would look at their development in stages and, and how can we support that and how can we, how can we you know, embrace that and, and help students along and help each other along. So really maybe taking away the word change, professional development is often like change the way you're teaching, change the way you're doing this, but it's just, it's more of a perspective of looking at it as develop, develop the way you're teaching, develop, and then you would see it as growth and not mm -hmm. something that's at odds with what you're used to. I do think to do that, um, Kristen, to your question initially about the conditions that we need, I think we need some agency. So Calvert talks about agency, and I think, I think that has to be there um, to really facilitate this idea of I can change and my mm -hmm. perspectives matter and that these changes might impact my students and impact our own professional um, growth. And I think that happens, you know, if, if your learning community provides that agency, then I think the next step is to just not expect some sort of revolutionary change, but to make small, <laughs> intentional um, steps forward. Come on, Brienne, we need a revolution. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast might do it. Yeah, do you hear the music playing? I do, I do, for sure. Paula, when you, when you mentioned um, professional development, professional learning, I really was thinking in terms of strategies being really intentional. I mean, Kristen, I think your organization should start offering a few webinars or workshops that are on these topics like you know advertise as a space a courageous space and you come into this space and you you diffuse the anxiety with you know establishing the group norms etc cetera, etc cetera. and and i would love we do it a little bit but there's not a lot of professional learning in this space for teachers or educators or learner educators or leaders in of educators and Again, I, I know I harp on it, but we cannot do this work with our students if we haven't done the work ourselves. Well, you know, Carrie, it, it harkens me to this idea of the whole coaching movement, right? Yeah. Where CEOs are, are hooking up with others who are helping them do that hard work. And I think educators are just sort of on the cusp of thinking about, well, what about getting a coaching from, for myself and, and someone who can help me think through and work through these, these processes? You know, one of the um, ideas that we've been talking a lot about in this podcast is values. And I see, you know, in my work as executive director of NILD, the values, you know, we have critical success factors, we have strategic plans, we have, you know, mission and vision, but what keeps us all aligned for that target? If we move it to, as, an, as a learning educator, what keeps us aligned to the target that we're moving towards in better understanding our students and connecting with them where they are, focusing on the learning and, and growing the knowledge, is the, these values, these highway bumpers that we picture our possible self and we have in mind of our possible self and we work toward it. And what are the steps to get there? And then going back to this naming and attending to something. You know, I think it wasn't for accident that, you know, the whole Adam and Eve story where they named the animals, it was one of the first tasks that they were done so that they could begin <laughs> to categorize and, and get them con conceptualized. So, so naming and labeling is, is really important as we develop our our identity as as a learning educator and so as we think you know one of the one of the core components that we want out of this podcast is not only an opportunity for us to reflect as educators the four of us I hope those of you that are joining us in this podcast are really hearing the active learning that we're having you know Carrie is saying her brain is itching I can see Brianne and Paula myself we're writing notes we're thinking actively as we're engaging in this and so we hope that you're participating with us and stretching your thinking I had one listener contact me after the first podcast and said I woke up at four in the morning and I was processing the value of a good mistake and I couldn't shake that out of my head and <laughs> how those opportunities had been redeemed to improve myself as an educator. And that's what we want. We want this sort of clarion call for action that comes out of these podcasts. So what are we going to do with these ideas that you've heard us grappling with that are hopefully um, generating ideas in your own mind? We want you to have a call to action, maybe this time around, to attend to the value. Maybe choose one word on a list. We're going to share a list, I think. Um, do you want to talk about this list, Carrie? Is this from Brene Brown? Yeah, it's her. Um, where I think we had 
decided we were going to put it on the NILD website with the podcast. It's just yes. from the Brene Brown Dare to Lead book. She actually, so that you don't have to use your cognitive power to think <laughs> of the words, she gave you a list of words. So it really is easy. Literally choose a word um, that represents a core value. And I was trying to think of how to explain it, but I, I bet you there are lots of listeners out there that have had goals, whether it's to run a 5K, to do some sort of swim, to learn how to do fill in the blank. And when you make those sorts of plans, you also have a, a practice regiment. And so what we're, we're asking or our call to action is just go and pick one value. Don't, not 10, not eight, one. And then, and then craft a plan. What's your training plan for the next six weeks or, or eight weeks that's going to help you to live that value? And at the end of that eight weeks, do you have evidence that you're living that value? Um, and so I, I don't know any clearer way to do this work than to just commit to it. Like you'd commit to anything else that you would want to achieve, um, you know, in your day-to-day -day life. So that was, that was the idea, Kristen. And that makes me break out into sweat thinking about it because the core value <laughs> that I named last time, and I really want to hang on to it. And, and Brianne, this goes to your point about perfectionists. I think all of us on the podcast <laughs> have this type A personality. My two core values were stewardship and growth mindset. I'm going to pick growth mindset. I'm going to commit on the podcast that that's the one. But here's the challenge I know that's going to happen. In this next four to six weeks, I'm going to have more mistakes happen than typically do. And I'm going to be called on the spot to find them, what the value is, what I've learned from them. <laughs> so ladies, when we get back together, I know one of you is going to ask me, what's the best mistake? How did you screw up royally? And you know what, what changes came for the good because of it. And, and I will, with trepidation, look forward to um, sharing that with the group this next go round. Kristen, are you, it sounds, I don't want to put, well, yeah, I do. I want to put Paula and Brienne on the spot because that's just what I do. Exactly. Um, do you think we should each name our value? I, I'm telling you, let's do it. If one for all for one and one for all, let's do it. So mine is Absolutely. growth mindset. Yeah. Paula? I, I chose patience. Because I'm I'm losing a lot these days, so I need to <laughs> I need to regain the patience I had when I taught seven year olds, yeah. and apply that to my high schoolers. Okay, few. I thought you were directing that at us, maybe. <laughs> 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 Brianne, how about you? I would say balance. So I'm always trying to balance perfectionism with you know just that courage of being vulnerable and open. So balance. Nice. I like and, that one. And Carrie, you're not off the hook. Oh, I know, I know. Hey, do you? think I'd ask a question that I didn't come prepared for, Kristen. Come on. You know me better than that. That's so what attorneys I, do, right? That's Yeah, I'm not one of those, though. Um, I came to the podcast last time with curiosity and authenticity, and I think I'm going to go with authenticity. So I'll check back in with you. Okay. All right. So growth mindset, patience, balance, authenticity. We encourage your, our listeners, check out that values list or create one of your own, commit to it. Believe me, you will find multiple opportunities once you begin to pay attention to that value to have it exercised and stretch you, push you into the margins, but you're going to be different because you're intentionally focusing on it. It will, sh it will change your practice. Look at ways in which you're teaching different, you're interacting differently with your colleagues. And um, feel free, you can write into NILD. Um, we have a, an info at NILD um, email address. So if you have thoughts, comments, feel free to write into us and we'd be happy to bring those to our next podcast. Thanks for listening today. We appreciate your time and look forward to sharing with you during our next podcast. Any final thoughts from anybody else? Ola. Well, yeah, I have one prepared <laughs> and I was waiting for it. I thought you were going to cut us off and I didn't get my last word. Um, so, so we talked a lot today about intentionality and, and really naming that thing that you want to work on and envisioning it. Um, so from an article by Olson talked about identity formation of teachers and he really based it on the reason for entering the career. Um, he talked about um, teachers that we are becoming. Um, so really the vision is what teacher do we want to become? What learner do we want to become? And having that vision there. I know a lot of people that are parents often say, oh, what kind of teacher do I want for my child? You know, and try to be that teacher. Um, but it's more about us reflecting internally what kind of teacher do we want to become. Fantastic ending. Way to go, my friends. We'll connect next time. Thanks, Thanks a everybody. lot. Dave.